All right, well, the last time that we were together, Paul reminded us of the power of examples from his letter in Philippians. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we saw um, the power of examples, that we need examples, and God knows that we need them. God has provided examples for us in the church. That's one of the blessings of the church. Not only does he intend us to grow through things like we would understand, like preaching and um, Bible study, prayer, and all those things that we normally think about, but God also intends us to grow as we watch and follow the good examples of other people, of those people who are out ahead of us in the Christian life. And uh, as you know, examples are particularly motivating. They help us see things that are possible that we might not otherwise aspire to. Um, you see an example and you say, wow, I didn't know that that could, that could happen. And last week I told you about how my six-year-old son lost his first tooth. Um, he was too afraid to pull it out until he learned that old dad pulled out his tooth as a young boy. And uh, suddenly there was new motivation. And he goes away and then comes back a couple minutes later. No tooth or tooth in hand, you know. So, um, examples are powerfully motivating. And Paul knew that, and he knew that the Philippians needed examples as well. So, if you remember back to the writing of this letter, he's writing it to get this church back on the mission, back on track, get her eyes back on Christ and off of her circumstances, off of the divisions that were happening. Paul writes this letter to refocus them. Right? But he knows that a letter, as important as it is, as inspired as it is, the letter itself is not enough. And you think, oh, it's not enough. Like, the Bible's not enough. Well, apparently not, because not only does this church need this letter, this apostolic word, but they also need an example, or multiple examples. They need Christ-like leaders who can help them, who can model for them what unity for the gospel looks like, who can help them see what reconciliation looks like, and who can rekindle joy for the mission of Christ. They need to see the kind of men worth following, worth modeling their own lives after. And when it comes to examples, Paul has already told us of the ultimate example, hasn't he? Chapter 2, who is that? Christ himself, right? In chapter 2. Christ is the ultimate example of humility, of condescension, of considering others' needs more important than his own. He is our ultimate example of, of what it means to be a slave and a servant to others, submitting to crucifixion for us. And he's loved us like that so that we would be changed, so that we would become like him, that we would learn to pattern our lives after his, to love like, he, like we've been loved. So he's our ultimate example. His own love has transformed us. And it transformed Paul as well. And Paul became an example to the churches that he planted. He became a present embodiment of Christ's own character to them. Was he perfect? No. But he did resemble Jesus. He did routinely sacrifice himself for the needs of the church, the good of the saints. And he calls the church to follow in his footsteps. But Paul is not the only example in this, in this letter. We saw that last time. We saw that Paul put forward one of his men, Timothy, as another example for this church to follow. 
And since Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he couldn't exactly get back down to Philippi very easily. He hoped to be released soon, but he was planning to come to them as, as soon as he was able to get there. But in the meantime, he planned to send his right-hand man. That was Timothy. And Timothy, too, was a model of Christ. He was deeply concerned for the Philippians. And Paul says he'd proven himself in faithful gospel ministry. He was the man for the job. And Paul was going to send him back to Philippi. Because he was confident that Timothy could help them get back on track. But at the end of chapter 2, we find that Paul has already sent someone as we speak, or as he speaks, starting in verse 25, he's already sent someone to them, a man named Epaphroditus. Or we might say he sent someone back to them. The Philippian church had sent one of their own leaders, this Epaphroditus, up to Rome. They sent him to help Paul. And in particular, they had sent him to deliver a large donation that would help provide for Paul while he was in prison. Now, though, Paul's sending him back. Think, interesting. Okay, so why is he sending him back? Well, we learn why in this paragraph. Let's just read it real quick as we're orienting. Paul says, I, I've thought, verse 25, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier and your messenger, and minister to my need. Why? For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but, also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, when we read something like this paragraph, it's similar to listening to one half of a phone conversation. You ever done that? Maybe mom was talking on the phone, and you're kind of listening in from the other room, and you're like, you're hearing what she's saying, and you're trying to piece together, like, what's going on, right? Like, what, what's happening? Well, that's kind of what we're doing here. Uh, when we read this, it's kind of like, okay, we're listening to what Paul's saying, and we're trying to think through what was the background, what was happening to, to lead him to say these kinds of things. So let me, let me take a minute, kind of as we're, as we're headed into this passage, and sketch maybe a situation here, kind of reconstruct the details and that will help us make some sense of this passage and, and really see what Paul's doing. Well, one of the little kind of tidbits of info that we learned from this passage is that while Epaphroditus was traveling to Rome to meet Paul, that's where Paul is, he's traveling to Rome, we know that he got sick, okay? He says he was ill. Now, we don't know this for sure, but we're almost certain that Epaphroditus was not traveling alone. He was probably traveling with a team because he was traveling with a lot of money. And in those days, didn't want to be traveling alone with a lot of money. So he likely had at least one travel partner. But apparently, Epaphroditus got sick enough on that journey for his partner to be so concerned that he needed to go back for some reason to the church in Philippi. Probably because he was seeking some kind of additional resource or medication maybe. Maybe they were close to Philippi when he got sick, so he went back. 
But when the church heard that Epaphroditus was sick, probably from this guy that left the team and went back to them, they heard that he was sick, they no doubt were super concerned. They were doubly concerned, you might say. Now let's think this through. Okay, why would they be so concerned? Well, not only were they worried about Paul, right? So remember, if you're Paul, the great apostle, they were, dearly, they were dearly yoked to him. Paul had planted their church. Paul was in prison and risked starvation, mistreatment, malnourishment, all kinds of things in Roman prison. They'd heard that he was in trouble. They'd heard that he needed finances and money. And so they were concerned for him. So they scrounged up enough money and they were going to send it through Epaphroditus. But now, so not only are they worried about Paul, but now they're worried about Epaphroditus too. He might die. So what would happen then to the gift that they sent? Remember, they're poor, so they scrounged up a lot of stuff to try to send to Paul. What would happen to the gift? What would happen to Paul if the gift doesn't get there? What would happen to Epaphroditus? There was a lot at stake. And apparently Epaphroditus knew that there was a lot at stake. (laughs) He knew there was a lot riding on him. The church was depending on him, and Paul's very life was at stake. So instead of waiting until he got better, apparently you know what he did? He kept going. He kept going because he wanted to make sure that Paul got the money before it was too late. He considered Paul's needs as more important than his own health. And when he arrived in Rome with the gift, he was so sick that everybody thought he was going to die. But in God's kindness, he preserved Epaphroditus' life and he raised him up to health. Now at some point, maybe during the time that Epaphroditus was recovering, that other guy that probably left the team, again, this is, we're inferring this, but he returned to Rome. He, kind of got, he finally got there you know, after going to Philippi and coming back. And then he told Paul and Epaphroditus how worried the Philippians were about both of them. Right? So Paul decides immediately to send Epaphroditus back to this church and likely, almost certainly, carrying this letter to them. So that's kind of the background. But if you know Paul, right? We've been studying Paul for quite a while. We've been around here a long time. If you know him, you know how he works, right? He doesn't doesn't waste a moment like this. He uses this incredible event as an opportunity to highlight Epaphroditus' character, his Christ-like character. And he wants to highlight him, put him on display to the Philippians and to us today. And he holds him up to this church as yet another real-time example of Christ, another model for us to follow. But he also does more than that in this passage. He tells the church how we should treat leaders like this. Any leader who resembles Christ's self-sacrificing character, like we'll see in Epaphroditus. And he tells us, if you notice, in this passage in verse 29, to joyfully receive such men and honor them. He says, verse 29, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. So Paul's goal in this passage is that the church see the kind of men Christ wants them to honor. To joyfully receive these men, to submit to them, pattern their lives after these kind of men. And he's going to describe Epaphroditus to us like he did with Timothy. 
And he's doing it to show us his character kind of in real time. And not only will this give us some targets to shoot for in our own character, but it will also help you gauge the health of a leadership team of a church when you leave Lynchburg. Right? So the reality is, most of you are not going to stay here the rest, for the rest of your life. You're in college. You're going, to, you're going to come here and go somewhere else. So you're going to need to recognize what Paul values in a leader. The kind of men that, that he expects you to submit yourself to, or as he says here, to joyfully honor. So tonight we're going to look at the character of Epaphroditus, and then we're going to end by thinking through kind of what, what our responsibility is to these kind of, of leaders. Okay? So we're going to look at, really, when you, when you look at this text, there's, there's three characteristics that kind of bubble up to the top. And you could say that we should, we should joyfully honor leaders who are the following, who exemplify the following characteristics. And again, they're kind of laced underneath this passage. You know, it, it looks like Paul's just describing his circumstances. He's sending this worker back, and you should receive him this way. But he's really, he's really setting him up on a pedestal to say, hey, follow these kind of men. All right? The first characteristic that Paul highlights about this man is how he is consumed with Christ's mission. Epaphroditus is consumed with Christ's mission. And this kind of rises to the top in the, the, the beginning and end of this passage. They're kind of like a bookend. Epaphroditus is completely devoted to the work of Christ. That's how Paul describes it. And it, it, it bubbles to the surface, this characteristic of total devotion to Christ's mission, that, that bubbles to the surface in really two ways, the beginning and end of this passage. And the first way we see that Epaphroditus is consumed with Christ's mission is in how Paul describes him in the first verse, in verse 25. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now notice this. They know who Epaphroditus is. Okay? It's their, one of their leaders. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, number one, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. Right? It's five different descriptions of a guy they already know. He gives some significant titles to Mr. Epaphroditus here. And in fact, he goes on and on about him. But why does he do that? Do they not know who their own leader was? Well, hardly. So, why all the descriptions? Well, I think he is just kind of pouring on the affirmation of their own leader here. And he's pouring it on, and he's highlighting his dedication to the mission of Christ. And in fact, the terms Paul uses here, Paul's essentially saying that Epaphroditus is just as dedicated in the mission of Jesus as he is. Thinking, whoa, as, as dedicated as Paul? Yes. It's pretty incredible if you think about it. So let's, let's quickly look at some of these terms here. Initially, um, he calls... Paul, or he, Paul calls Epaphroditus my brother. And this is familial language, obviously. But it's significant for a Jew to say that about a Gentile. And we know that Epaphroditus is a Gentile because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, like a pagan name. It's, 
But in Christ, we are all one. We're one in Him. Jew and Gentile come together in this one new man. We're all family. And Epaphroditus is Paul's beloved brother. And it speaks of this familial warmth and a shared brotherhood. He's immediately affirming this guy. Next, he describes him as a fellow worker or a co-worker. And this is marketplace language. If you've got familial language, now it's marketplace language. Paul says they're like two employees working side by side at the same job. They're both working together faithfully for the mission of Christ. And then third, he calls him a fellow soldier or a co-soldier. And this is obviously military language. Epaphroditus is soldiering on next to Paul in gospel ministry. Both of them are utterly devoted to the same commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourth, he calls him a messenger from the Philippian church. And literally, that word is apostle. So, if you were here on Sunday, we covered this word in depth. But this is political language. It's talking about a messenger, uh, someone who's sent with an authorized message from an authority figure, like a governor or an emperor. Now, Epaphroditus is not one of the twelve apostles, but he is a Philippian, like, lowercase apostle. He's one that was sent by Philippi. He was a messenger sent by them to inform Paul about their love for Paul and the situation that they were facing in their church. And finally, he's a servant or a minister. This is priestly language. Paul here presents Epaphroditus as someone sent to bring an offering, something that pleases the Lord, a financial gift that meets Paul's need. So if you step back, okay, if you step back and you look at these terms, Paul's making a sweeping affirmation of Epaphroditus. He describes him with metaphors from every sphere of life. Family, workplace, military, politics, religion. And his point in each of these is that Epaphroditus is faithfully devoted to Christ's mission. He's consumed with it like a faithful farmer is consumed with his field, or a soldier is consumed with his post, or a messenger is consumed in representing the message of the emperor, singularly focused. And not only is he consumed with it, but he stands in unity with Paul. Paul says they are fellow workers. He doesn't just say he's a worker. He could have just said he's a worker, but he says a fellow worker. There's a compound word. And he could have just said a soldier, but he doesn't say that. He says a fellow soldier. It's another compound word. And what his point is that neither of them, neither Paul nor Epaphroditus, have their own agenda in gospel ministry. They only have Christ's agenda. And they work together in deep unity and camaraderie. They're not jealous of each other. They don't envy each other's gifts. They don't try to outdo each other in gospel ministry. Why not? Because they're not focused on themselves They're not focused on their own agenda in ministry. Their one goal is the promotion of Christ and the advancement of His kingdom. And this is a powerful example to the church. And especially this church, who had begun to bicker against each other and complain. This shows that their agendas are reigning supreme, not Christ's agenda. And the same is true of us. When we're offended with each other. When we gossip, when we are comparing ourselves against others, when we've got our own agendas in the church, when we're envying the gifts of one another, 
This shows that we need Epaphroditus' example of singular devotion to what Christ wants. Singular devotion to His mission. And His mission includes humbling ourselves, reconciling when we're offended, and moving forward together for the sake of the Gospel. Moving forward like Christ and Epaphroditus are here, or Paul and Epaphroditus are here with arm, arm in arm, like soldiers that are fighting in the same battle together. But notice that Paul doesn't just describe his character in these metaphors. He also, at the end of this passage, exemplifies his character in, in action, right? In verse 30, we get a glimpse into how this devotion to Christ's mission played out in real time. Paul says Epaphroditus was willing to put his life in danger for the sake of the gospel. He says, receive him in the Lord, verse 29, honor such men, why? For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he nearly died for the work of Christ. Epaphroditus was so consumed with Christ's mission. He was so consumed with the needs of others, the work of Christ here, that it almost cost him his life. And in fact, it would have cost him his life if God had not raised him up. And that's what Paul says here. So, how did he risk his life? Well, Paul says here that he risked it to complete what was lacking in the Philippian service to him. So what he means is that Epaphroditus got the money safely to Paul. The safe transfer. And in that sense, he completed the work that they began when they took the collection. They started it, and Epaphroditus finished it. And he risked his life because he pushed through a severe illness to get it to Paul. So let's step back a second. Paul's holding out our friend here as an example worth emulating and honoring. So we need to ask a couple questions here, okay? Is this kind of singular devotion to the mission of Christ what you see in your leaders here? The first question you need to ask. Do you see unity around the mission of Jesus? Or is there self-promotion and bickering going on amongst the leadership? Is there humility in our respective posts that we have? Do you see a desire to risk our lives, to see churches planted and the work of Christ extended? You should see it. It should be there. It's what Christ has graciously called us to. And if it's not, there's a problem. All right? Now, if you're an aspiring leader, okay, if you're an aspiring leader, is this your motivation? It's not about your ministry ambitions. It's not about doing ministry your way. It's not about being creative. And it's definitely not about building any kind of ministry brand or empire. It's all about Christ's kingdom. It's all about the king's mission and the king's method. It is not about self-promotion, but about being willing to die to see Christ's kingdom advance. Are you willing 
to put your life on the line to make sure that Paul has something to eat? Are you a fellow worker, a fellow soldier? Are you a servant who is just concerned with being faithful, who is unified with your leaders, who, you can, who can be depended on for Christ's mission and not your own self-advancement? Aspire to be like Epaphroditus, young men. But he's not just an example for the aspiring pastors, as important as that is. He's also an example of being consumed by the mission for the whole church. So just think about what he's doing. He's not preaching the gospel in this passage, although I'm sure he did that. He's not planting churches. He's not doing any of the things we typically associate with missions. He's delivering money. And Paul calls that the work of Christ. This means then that Epaphroditus is extending the ministry of the gospel by keeping Paul alive. This shows us then that you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to be consumed with Christ's mission. You can be and ought to be consumed with Christ's mission in any vocation or sphere of influence. Whether you're part of the church who sacrificially gave, or whether you're the guy pushing through the flu to get the gift of Paul, or whether you're Paul who is the powerhouse teacher and apostle, you are all involved in the work of Christ. We are all partners in gospel ministry. It's what Paul said to the Philippians back in chapter 1. We're partners. Every single part of this partnership is absolutely necessary. If the people didn't give, Paul starved. If Epaphroditus didn't take it, Paul starved. If, the, if Paul doesn't get the gift, then Paul doesn't preach, and no churches are planted. And so as we're learning on Sundays, we are all designed by Christ to play a vital part in the mission and to be just as consumed with it as Epaphroditus is here. I think we think, well, pastors and missionaries, church planters are supposed to be consumed with the mission, not me. So supposed to come to church. But let Epaphroditus be your example. Is the heartbeat of your life replication? This should be our heartbeat as a church, no matter what part you play in it. It should be to see churches planted and Christ's reign extended and the churches matured in whatever life situation that you're in. The student studying finance can and ought to be consumed with the mission of Jesus just like the guy studying preaching. The young mother ought to be consumed with the mission of Jesus as she raises her children. The senior saint going blind ought to be consumed with the mission of Christ and seeing it advance, even though his eyesight is dimming. The key is that we use our gifts, our positions of influence, and our resources sacrificially to this end. So at the beginning and end of this passage, Paul highlights the characteristic of utter devotion to Christ's mission. It's what Paul sees in this man's life, and he points to it for all of us. But that's not the only characteristic he highlights. He also says that Epaphroditus is concerned for Christ's church. No surprise there. 
Because to be consumed with the mission, you are automatically concerned for the church. Because that's the mission. Now, we actually see two ways that Epaphroditus' sweet concern for the Philippian church manifests here in this passage. And they're, they're closely related. And they're both in verse 26. Initially, his concern is displayed in his great desire for their flourishing. So he wants to see this church doing well, and he eagerly desires this. So back in verse 25, Paul says, I, I want to send him. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And here's the reason, verse 26, the first reason. For he has been longing for you all. He's been longing for you all. He's got a great desire for you. Paul says he's been longing for every single one of you. He's been yearning for all of you. Epaphroditus is filled with an intense desire to see this church flourish in Christ. Paul used the same verb of his own desire for the Philippians back in chapter 1. Okay? You'll remember it. He said, chapter 1, verse 8, he said, God is my witness how I yearn for you all. That's the same phrase. Yearn for you all. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the heart of a true shepherd. Someone who truly cares for the church of God and, and in particular the flock he's been entrusted with. So I just kind of put myself in Epaphroditus' shoes here and, and think about what he felt. Okay? Leaving a church that he knew was in conflict. He knew Yodia, Syntyche. He knew what was going on. He knew they were in disagreement. He knew that persecution was on the rise. He knew that this church was struggling for joy and to be content, and they were discouraged in hearing about Paul. And he had to leave them behind. The journey was rough. I mean, obviously, he got deathly ill. But he had to step up to the plate to take this gift to Paul. He was, and so he yearned for them the whole time. We're talking a six-month round-trip journey. That's a long time to be away from your sheep under any circumstance, and especially when there's conflict. And his spirit-indwelt heart yearned for every single one of them. Meaning, he did not play favorites or prefer one faction over another faction in the church. He yearned for everybody. He was an impartial shepherd. He eagerly desired their reconciliation. He eagerly desired their flourishing, their maturation in Christ. He wanted to see them multiplying. He knew that there were other elders there. Philippians 1.1, obviously there's elders in this church, overseers. And they were doing shepherding for sure, but he still longed for them as any true shepherd does. And I just think about it. Paul could see it on his face. He could hear it in his voice. He was struck by the intensity of his prayers, I'm sure. Paul saw Epaphroditus' longing, and that is one of the main reasons he sent him back so quickly. And it should be no surprise that Epaphroditus shares the same kind of concern, the same devotion to the church that we saw Timothy had last time. 
We applied that, applied that point in the message last week, but, but it's worth considering it now. Do you have this kind of a longing for the flourishing of your friends here in Boundless? Are you willing to overlook the weaknesses of others to see them grow? Are you willing to absorb offenses and continue to love? Are you willing to work through the differences that you have? Are you willing to open yourself up to new people to welcome them in so they can come to know Christ or they can come to flourish in Christ too? That's what Epaphroditus models for us all tonight. He forgot about himself. He was consumed with the needs of others. And it's expressed in that longing that he had for the church. And his longing was intensified when he caught wind that the church was worried about him being sick. For all they knew, he might be dead, right? So we could say that this desire for the church shines through in an additional way in his great distress over their concern. He was moved and greatly distressed over their own worry about him. Look, at it. he says in verse 3, he's been, he's been longing for you all, and, here's another one, he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And Paul says, indeed, he was ill, here to death. So, this is a beautiful detail. Because I don't know what comes in your mind when you think about Paul or his ministry teams or the men he trained and deployed. Usually when we hear about everything that Paul endured and the things he was asking his men to do, we, we, we think these guys are just like hardcore. And I mean, they are, right? We think bold preaching. We typically don't think gentleness, tenderness. But I am convinced after studying Paul for years that he and his men exuded gentleness. He dripped with tenderness toward the sheep that would almost make us think he was too soft. And Epaphroditus certainly had it here. Not only did he yearn for them, but the very thought that they were worried about him crushed him. He was distressed. Now, Let's have a little fun here. I can imagine how this conversation went down, okay? When the ministry guy came back to, you know, his coworker, his his teammate that went to tell the church that he was, you know, to get help. You know, this is like, you told them I was sick, you know? Why did you do that? Now they're worried about me. They might think I'm dead, you know, but I'm not. I'm worried about them now. They were already discouraged. I don't want them jumping to worst-case scenarios like they're prone to do. I've really got to go back now to show them I'm okay. I've got to relieve their burdens and ease their fears. This, I mean, again, don't have any evidence for that, but I, just helping you think, think that through, okay? This is the heart of a shepherd who deeply cares for his people. You know, I was thinking, like, how, if I heard him say things like that, you know, I'm Timothy, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, dude, trust the sovereignty of God, bro. Like, church is, God's got this church, you know? But Paul would have rebuked me. Paul would have said, no, he's got a tender, 
shepherd's heart. He's concerned. He wants to ease their fears. This is the heart of a shepherd. And this is convicting for me. It reminds me of Christ's tender love, right? Of His ultimate concern for my good. Paul and Epaphroditus and these men who exude this kind of tenderness, they can't hold a candle to Christ. It reminds me that Christ wants me to move toward you all with that kind of tender love, that intimacy, that longing, that kind of fervency in my prayers to desire to relieve your burdens and to ease your fears when I can. And that is the attitude of all true shepherds who are like Christ. So, if you end up leaving our ministry or you're just visiting tonight and you're trying to decide on a church, see if the pastors of that place exude this kind of a longing, this kind of a love, this kind of tender concern for the sheep of their church. How do they pray for them in public? Do they know the sheep? Are they among the sheep? Is it evident that they love them and are willing to sacrifice for them? Or are they using the sheep to get fat? So just think about it. When Epaphroditus heard about their concern, he was ready to pack it all back up and make the six-month journey back to his church to ease their burdens. The dude almost died. He had just recovered. And there he's, he's ready to make that journey right back. He could have probably used a little more R&R in Rome. But he is ready to go. He is longing to get back to Philippi to care for the sheep. Make sure in whatever church you go to next that the pastors have that kind of heart for you and for all the sheep in their care. Because sadly, most don't. But when shepherds are faithful, when they have that kind of love for the church, over time, they elicit trust and love from the sheep. And that leads us to our third and final characteristic that shines through in these verses. Epaphroditus, as we might expect, is absolutely cherished by Christ's people. He is beloved by Paul and by the Philippian church. So this characteristic, like the other ones, it shines through in a couple ways in this passage. We see how cherished Epaphroditus is when Paul gets real about how broken-hearted he would be if he lost him to illness. You tracking with me? When Paul was broken over how sad he would be if he lost Epaphroditus, that shows us how much he loved him and how endeared Epaphroditus was to Paul. So we could say that we see this in Paul's emotional brokenness at the thought of losing Epaphroditus. Listen to this language in verse 27. Indeed, he was ill. In fact, it was worse than you know. He was near death. But God had mercy on him. And you think, yeah, okay. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So, God had mercy on the sick man when he raised him up. That's obvious. But Paul says God also had mercy on him too. How so? Because by raising up Epaphroditus, God spared Paul 
from what he calls sorrow upon sorrow. Not just sorrow, but sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's saying here it would have crushed him to see Epaphroditus pass right in front of him. He would have been drowned in sorrow had that happened. That's sorrow upon sorrow. This is the language of friendship and endearment. Paul dearly loved Epaphroditus, and the thought of losing him absolutely broke his heart. Paul would have lost a tremendous source of encouragement, a battle buddy, a co-laborer in the mission of Christ, a blood brother in the church, someone he could count on in the foxhole, and the church would have lost a minister. So he says God had mercy on him too by raising up Epaphroditus. Now, this is more of a side note, okay, about Paul and his emotions um, here. This is one of the things I found interesting, so this is kind of for free. Um, This is the same Paul who said just one chapter ago that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about that. It's the same Paul who said he would rather die so that he could be with Christ. The death was preferable to life for him. This same Paul, when faced with the death of one of his friends, says it would be like heaping up sorrows on him. Even though he knew that Epaphroditus would be with Christ. Paul is certainly no stoic. He is full of emotion, like his Lord, who wept over Lazarus' death just minutes before he raised him from the dead. For Paul, death is still part of the curse. Death is to be mourned. Death of a friend is something to be grieved and wept over and even sorrowed in. It's not without hope. It's not what Paul's saying here. But there is a reality that it's sorrow upon sorrow. The thought of the death of his friend was extremely troubling. So, some things for free here from Paul that we see is is we've got to be careful that we don't just jump to God's sovereignty when people are grieving. Right? God is sovereign. It doesn't change. But just because you're broken and in the dust and there's snot all over your face and you're crying, that does not mean you've denied God's sovereignty. That doesn't mean you're minimizing their glory that they're receiving in heaven. That means you're broken. And that's okay. So as we interact with those folks, as we maybe experience sorrows ourselves, know that that is perfectly permissible. We can grieve in hope. And then I think we've got to be careful also of thinking that, that people who are grieving like that are faithless. Or that they're somehow denying the hope of the gospel. Because they're not. So, that was free. Let's get back to how Epaphroditus is an example. Paul is clearly an example laced under here too. So we don't have time to talk about all his ways, but <clears throat> we could. I'll give you that, that one for free. All right. So, Epaphroditus is clearly cherished by Paul. And um, there's an additional way that we see that he's beloved in this passage. And it's at the church's joy in getting him back safe and sound. 
Paul says he's the more eager to send Epaphroditus that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And he says that I may be less anxious. So Paul's sending Epaphroditus back immediately and eagerly because he knows that this will lead to the church's joy. Their concerns about Epaphroditus will be relieved when he walks back into their assembly healthy and eager to minister to them. And this means the restoration of the church's joy, at least in some capacity. So it's clear that Epaphroditus is a model for us to emulate, even in this area, especially for pastors. Okay? In fact, a healthy pastoral team will not just love the people, but the core of the church will love them too. So if you're heading out from this ministry in the future and you're examining other churches, ask yourself, do the people seem endeared to their shepherds? Does there seem to be sincere love from the core members to their pastoral team? Now, we obviously had a beautiful example of this tonight in your letters, um, but we saw another sweet example of this recently when Pastor Brian went into surgery for his heart. There was an outpouring of love to him from this church. It was sweet. Absolute outpouring. Hundreds of texts, lots of prayers, lots of genuine concern for his well-being. And it was a joy to watch you love one of our pastors. And it was a sweet illustration, really, of what we see here. But let me give a word to, to maybe the aspiring pastors in the room. Um, I'm not familiar with their pastoral ministries classes, but sometimes there's a, a bit of kind of pastoral advice that gets passed down in some of these, these classes that you shouldn't have close relationships with people in the congregation. That sounds crazy, I know, but that's sometimes what's, what's said. You shouldn't have these close relationships because, by the way, you're the pastor and they're the sheep and your closest relationship should only be with the other pastors outside of your church. Now, I get the logic and to a certain extent, I understand that some of the closest comrade relationships are going to be between fellow elders, fellow ministry partners, like we see between Paul and Epaphroditus here. But the, that kind of advice sort of flies in the face of what we see here. Right? Not only does Paul love them, or Paul love, love Epaphroditus, but so do the people of Philippi. And he loves them too. So it's clear that Epaphroditus isn't holding anything back from this church, nor they to him. He's cultivating genuine and open friendships with the sheep, friendships that are characterized by deep love and concern. So in, in all these ways, Epaphroditus stands next to Timothy, and he's presented as an example for you and I to follow. And that's certainly Paul's, part of Paul's intent in this passage, but not only are we to emulate men like this, but Paul goes one step further in this passage and actually gives us some instructions on how we should interact with men like this. He tells the Philippians that he wants them to joyfully receive and honor men like this. Look in verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. So number one, first command. Number two, second command. And honor such men. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. So let's end tonight with just looking quickly at these two commands. Paul tells him to receive such men with joy, or receive him, Epaphroditus, with all joy in the Lord. 
And Paul's point here is that the church should recognize the source of joy a good leader like Epaphroditus is to the congregation. They should recognize that he's a source of joy. And they should receive that gift with joy. So, what does that look like? Well, it means then that you should not feel guilty about having a group of elders who love to spend and be spent for your souls. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. They're, they're for your joy. You shouldn't feel like a bother when you have needs and you allow them to shepherd you. And you get on their calendar and you make an appointment. Instead, Paul says, receive them with joy. Receive them as a gift and rejoice in the gift. We're little faint, imperfect reflections of Christ, but let us be to you the source of joy that God intends. That's the first way he says we should respond to these kind of people. But then there's a second. He says also that you should honor such men or show them honor. Paul says you should honor people like this, like Epaphroditus. Meaning, who resemble him. So he's clearly putting him up as a kind of a, a litmus test for the kind of men that you should, you should honor and just all people. And he's saying you should honor those guys who lay their lives down for the good of the sheep and in their sacrifices to extend Christ's mission. Paul is simply calling the church to esteem godly, Christ-like people very highly. Okay? Not just pastors. It's not limited to just the pastors of the flock. To esteem people, any, any people like they see in Epaphroditus, who's willing to lay their lives down for the work of Christ. In other words, they should exalt the truly humble and self-sacrificing among them. Because that's what the Father did to Christ. Remember? Back in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him after he humbled himself and laid his life down. That's the pattern. And as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but think of how blessed Rich and I are personally for how you guys fulfill this very command to honor your shepherds and honor those in your midst that are laying their lives down for the good of the sheep. It's even more humbling how you esteem us. And so from notes like tonight to seeking our counsel to listening intently to the teaching, um, seeking to serve us, being generous and ready to share what you have, even if it's a little bit, you know, and, and encouraging us in all kinds of ways, you guys are truly a joy to shepherd. So let's rejoice in that tonight and let's be stimulated by Epaphroditus' example to lay it all on the line for the sake of Christ's mission. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this written example of Epaphroditus and the living examples of so many in our flock, from our pastors to the, the sheep who are serving on a daily basis and, and sacrificing themselves for the sake of your mission. Would we pray that you would use us and that you would show us how um, to effectively replicate and extend your mission in the world we pray in Christ's name. Amen.